This is the Future of Agriculture podcast, the show that explores the people, companies, and ideas shaping the future of agribusiness. If you're curious about innovations in ag tech, rural entrepreneurship, ag sustainability, or food security, this is the show for you. Let's get started. Hey, thanks for downloading the podcast. My name is Tim Hamrich. It's my pleasure to bring you these stories every week of the founders, the farmers, the innovators, the investors, the people shaping the future of agriculture. A really special thank you to new community members, Pete Gill and Corey Franson. I really appreciate all of you who have signed up to be part of this new community we've just launched. You can join Pete, Corey, and others over at patreon.com forward slash agriculture. Last fall, we did a listener survey, and a common suggestion I got for improvement was to feature more international stories. I'm definitely making an effort to that end. In fact, just last week, you heard Sam Watson-Jones from the UK and Small Robot Company. This week, we are headed to India. I'm really proud of the fact that already in 2020, this podcast has been downloaded in well over 100 different countries. The top seven of those countries definitely make up the vast majority of downloads. In case you're curious, they are in order. U.S., Australia, Canada, the U.K., Brazil, Germany, and India, which is our focus for today's episode. Agriculture is about one-fifth of the entire economy in India, a country with over 1.3 billion people and, get this, over 100 million farmers. The topic we explore today is how do startups develop and deploy technology to reach 100 million farmers, especially when the average farm size is less than five acres? That definitely changes the game for technology adoption. Our guest is Mark Kahn. Mark is the managing partner for Omnivore, which is a venture capital firm based in India that funds entrepreneurs building the future of agriculture and food systems. Mark has an MBA from Harvard and got his start in India with companies like like ITC and Syngenta. He noticed the need for an agritech, and he'll tell you later in the episode why it should be called agritech and not agtech, focused a venture fund, which led him to start Omnivore in 2010. A lot of gems in here about agritech. There you go, Mark, in such a fascinating and important country of India. Mark begins our conversation by sharing why he ultimately decided to start Omnivore. We just saw an opportunity to come in as early stage investors in these really innovative agritech startups and, and help them scale and realized that there was an opportunity to build a fund around that and, and did. And so we raised our first fund across 2012 and, and 13, finished raising it at the end of 13. It took a long time, but first time funds usually do. And that was about $35 million. And we deployed that across 2012, 13, 14, 15, and a little bit of 16. And then it was largely exhausted. And we invested across 13 agritech companies here in India. About 10 of them are still chugging along. So it's been a pretty good survival rate. And, you know, some really interesting businesses. We invested, our first investment ever was SkyMet, which is a a weather forecasting and monitoring company, kind of like the weather.com out here in, in India. We invested in Stellaps, which is digitizing the dairy sector, not just in India, but globally. 
really strong technical team out of an Indian IT company called Wipro. We invested in two companies that now have corporate investors that have joined us, global corporate investors that have joined us on the cap table. So we invested in an aquaculture IoT company called Eruvaca that builds a suite of hardware and software that allows uh, aquaculture farmers to better manage their shrimp ponds. And interestingly, that company you know, kind of struggled initially in India uh, in terms of product market fit. And it found that it was far better suited to farms in Latin America and Southeast Asia. It's, it's now growing quite well in India. But along the way, Nutreco, one of the largest European animal nutrition companies, invested in, in, in Aruvaca and, and has been a strategic partner. And similarly, we invested in a specialty precision spraying company for horticulture uh, called Mitra. And a few years back, Mahindra, which is India's largest tractor company, largest tra one of the largest tractor companies globally, invested in, in, in Mitra. So it's been, it's, been, it's been pretty interesting, the first fund. And you know, we started raising our second fund in 2017, hit a first close in 18, final close in 19, and we raised about $95 million there. And so that's the entity we are investing out of right now. We've done about 10 deals in the new fund. We're expecting to do about 20. So um, a fairly, uh, you know, on average, about five new deals a year. And there have been some great new companies that, that we've backed. We've backed a, a farmer platform called Dehat. That's kind of like the FBN of, of India. We've backed a company called Intello Labs that is essentially providing a digital quality solution to the fresh produce sector. We backed an agri-robotics company called TartanSense that's developing small robots for small farms, focused initially on weed control and cotton. We've backed an we've, we've backed an aquaculture SaaS and marketplace company called AquaConnect. We've backed a horticulture IoT company called Fossil. Yeah, we've been we've been very very active. Yeah. How did, uh, I'm just curious, going back to, you know, when you started the innovations you were seeing around versus what you ended up investing in, was there, a, was there kind of a big difference learning? I mean, in how you viewed those startups before you raised the fund versus how you viewed them after you raised the fund? Well, I mean, I think in the first fund, the distinction between VC ready startups versus startups that were not really suited for venture capital. You, you need to understand that venture capital is a product itself, okay? The analogy I give people is that venture capital is like jet fuel. If you put jet fuel in a jet, the jet flies. If you put jet fuel in a Ford, the Ford explodes, right? And you kind of have to ask yourself, is my startup a jet or is it a Ford, right? Or even if it's a you know a Lamborghini or a Ferrari, you still don't want to put jet fuel on. Right. So how do you how do you uh, determine if it's a jet? I, I think a lot of it has to do with with kind of nonlinear scalability, right? Or or if it's linear scalability with the ability to kind of execute at an incredibly fast pace. And not everyone can can do that, right? So for example, one of the things that we learned was like pretty you know hard hardware businesses scale more linearly and slower. And so we, you know, Mitra was a terrific investment in fund one, but it probably wasn't as well suited to venture capital 
right, as, as Stellaps, which is a digital stack over the dairy sector. Hmm. And so I think in, in Fund 2, our, our ability to kind of see what is VC ready versus what is innovative and great, but maybe where venture capital is not the right product for that entrepreneur, that has become sharper and clearer. Interesting. Yeah. And what about the entrepreneurs themselves? Obviously, there's cultural differences between, you know, the U.S., which I would be more familiar with. What have you noticed there? I know you said, you know, human capital is one of India's greatest strengths. You know, does that does that also apply to, you know, the number of entrepreneurs there? So I, I would say that there is a huge amount of entrepreneurship in India. I think entrepreneurship has become more mainstream, startup entrepreneurship has become more mainstream among highly educated, highly qualified individuals today, you know, over the last few years than it was when we got started in 2011. If the entrepreneurs back in 2011 were, everyone was crazy, right? It was just like, I'm going to do something absolutely insane. And as a result, you didn't tend to get people that were as pedigreed, right? And as entrepreneurship has become more mainstream, as startups have become more common, as we have more unicorns in India, the quote unquote risk of entrepreneurship, forget about just the economic risk, the social risk, right? And you think of it in terms of opportunity costs, right? People out of elite MBA schools in India in 2010 didn't join startups. People out of elite MBA schools in 2020 want to join startups. In fact, that's one of the most preferred things to do out of, when you get your when you come out of one of the top five MBA programs. And as a result, the talent dynamics across the entire agri sector, but including agri tech, sorry, the talent dynamics across the entire startup sector, but including agri tech, have totally changed. And the quality of the founders has radically improved. Right. To be clear, we had some great founders in Fund 1, but our average founder in Fund 2 is better pedigreed, has more work experience, and more of them have worked in startups previously. And the best experience you can get for launching a startup is working in a startup. Because the reality is corporate experience is useful, but it doesn't exactly translate into startup world. Yeah. I believe it. What what about the customer base over there? My understanding is, you know, versus the West, you're talking a much smaller farm on average. And so a, probably a customer base that maybe is more fragmented. How, how do you look at that? And, and I mean, from an investment perspective, does that create more of a challenge? So, I, I mean, the thing that everyone has to understand about Indian agriculture is India has 100 million farmers. That number is sometimes quoted as high as 130 million. I think that's inflated, but I think it's fair to say India has at least 100 million farmers. And the average farm size here is about three to four acres, right? Wrap your brain around that for a second. So, you know, sorry, five acres. I would say the average, the average, you know, farm here is, is, is kind of five acres. So it's, it's definitely, it's very, very different. That said, and this is something that is simply true, Indian agribusiness, as distinct from Indian farmers, has built itself over decades to cater to farmers this small. So we have, we have much, you know, so distribution here is much less concentrated. It's much more like corner agri stores, right? The, you know, the equivalent of, of, of mom and pop shops in every village. 
that sell seeds and fertilizers and agrochemicals, crop protection, equipment. And that hasn't stopped large Indian agribusinesses from being some of the biggest in the world. I mean, I don't think a lot of you know your your listeners realize this, but we used to talk about the big six, right? In, in, in the input side of things, the big six became the big four, right? Now you have Bayer, BASF, Corteva, and Syngenta owned by, by ChemChina. Well, number five is UPL, 20 minutes from, from where I'm sitting in Mumbai, okay? Because they bought Arista, right? They bought Advanta in the past. They bought Arista recently, about a year ago, two years ago. And now they're number five in the world. And they own huge generic presence in, in the US and Brazil. And it's, it's an Indian MNC, multinational corporation. Mahindra is the same way. I mean, their, their dominance in the US small tractor market has slipped a little bit. But you still see Mahindra in every farm fair, you know, every farm show in, in, in the U.S. Um, and across China and Turkey and all of this. So, so you have these large. So Indian agribusiness is very sophisticated, but it is generally tooled towards meeting the needs of smallholder farmers because the average farmer in India is a smallholder farmer. Mm hmm. What about like your dairy startup? You know, is it the same thing for them where you're, where you're really, you know, you're kind of looking at the. I'll, I'll, give, I'll put it to you this way. The average Indian dairy farm has three yeah. animals on it. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> so we do have dedicated dairy farms, but like a dedicated dairy farm in India, yes, there are some that have 400, 500 animals. But your, but your average dairy farming, dairy farming in India was, it has been created over the years and supported as an ancillary activity largely managed by the woman of the house. Okay. So the the husband oversees the agriculture, the crops, the horticulture, and the woman of the house manages one, two, three, four, five animals, right? And all of their milking. And the the way the Indian dairy industry works, right, is that the family keeps back a little bit that they consume in their home and they market the rest of the surplus, right? Now, the average Indian cow, right, let's say we're talking about, you know, a hybrid kind of Holston Frisian, right? Their milk yield is, you know, I mean, it's lower than it is in the West. On the low right. side, it might be 10 liters a day. On the high side, it might be 20, okay? So let's say we're talking about like 10 liters a day across four animals, okay? So you got 40 liters a day. You keep back two liters and you go market the 38. Now, every village has, right, literally boys on bicycles that are picking this milk up and then bringing it to a collection center in the village. And at the collection center, it gets measured. The fat gets tested. Solid non-fats get tested. Farmer gets paid. It goes from there to a bulk chilling center. From there, it goes into milk processing, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. In the process, India produces more milk than any country in the world. India is literally the world's largest producer of milk. And it all flows through a system that is hyper fragmented village by village and then forms up, you know, via processing into the largest milk industry in the world. Yeah. And this is true across, across sectors. This is, you know, India is the largest cotton producer in the world. India is the second largest sugar producer in the world, right? But unlike Brazil, which has massive plantations and huge land holdings, right? Again, sugar in India is owned five, 10 acres at a time. Yeah. 
So what, what in not, maybe not what incentive, but what is the appetite for a smallholder farmer like that to adopt new technology? I mean, are they looking to double in size and need that technology for efficiency sake? Or, you know, I'm just looking at kind of how they adopt new technology or, or kind of what causes them to. So I, I think to generalize smallholder farmers is, is a mistake. You, you, you have to appreciate also that 15% of Indian farmers own 45% of the land. So that average is misleading because, again, we're talking about 100 million people, okay? It is a large base effect. So if we look at Indian agriculture, there, is, there are pockets of prosperity in a sea of poverty, right? There is a strong pocket of prosperity in horticulture. There is a strong in, in fruits and vegetables. There is a strong pocket of prosperity in aquaculture. There is a strong pocket of prosperity in poultry, the dairy industry works with some of the poorest farmers in India, but has managed through their incredible, you know, highly distributed sourcing system to transform the lives of those farmers. And a lot of the dairy industry is under cooperative, similar to like, similar to like Lando Lakes in the U.S. So it's a bit dangerous to generalize who is, you know, so if you, if you ask the question, you know, is the average Indian farmer looking to double their land holdings? Actually, it's very difficult for them to do that. There's a lot of land reform laws here that make that quite tricky. But they are looking to improve their profitability. They're looking to improve their resilience. And so there is a willingness, not among all, okay, sure. to adopt technologies that would do that. So, so India has struggled with GM because we had, we introduced BT cotton in the early 2000s. And then uh, about a decade ago, our whole GM regulatory structure went for a toss. But in between the introduction of BT cotton, I think within five years, 98% of the hectares in India were under BT cotton. It was one of the fastest adoptions of GM technology in history. So farmers are willing to adopt technology if you can get it to them, right? Make it accessible and make it at price points that work for them. So when we think about our portfolio companies, Right. And I'll give you kind of two examples. We have a portfolio company called Fussel. Fussel makes a super low cost IoT device, Internet of Things device that goes on to a progressive that is for progressive horticulture farmers. And you put it down in the in the soil and it measures it's a microclimate weather station, a tiny microclimate tracking weather station. And then it also tracks soil conditions, it tracks leaf wetness, solar radiation. And around that, predictive algorithms have been built so that farmers can anticipate risks, right, and know when to spray and critically when not to spray and when they can and when they can save money. And it's being used in crops like grapes and pomegranate, you know, tea, coffee, citrus. The farmers that Fussel is going at are those larger, wealthier, more progressive farmers within this, you know, of the 100 million farmers in India, Fussel's looking at the top 10 million. On the other hand, if we look at, at Dehat, Dehat is a farmer platform. Again, I kind of said it's like the FBN of India. They're in Eastern India, which is the poorer half of India, working in the states of Bihar, UP, Jharkhand, and Orissa. There are already about 400,000 farmers on the Dehat platform. And on the Dehat platform, they buy inputs, right, at, at better prices than they could get in their local shop. 
They access lower cost finance than they could get from their village moneylender. They are able to you know, sell their commodities, right? Bypassing local markets, sell them to food processors and get paid more. And the hot puts an advisory an advisory stack over the entire thing. So with the goal of, of you know, increasing farmer profitability by anywhere from 50 to 100%. So those farmers are not saying, oh, I want to buy this technology. Those farmers are saying, hey, do you have a solution that can get me out of this awful poverty trap that I'm in? And Dahab says, yeah, we do, right? We have a platform and you join that platform and we can transform the world of, of your farm across inputs, finance, advisory, and outputs. And so, you know, I think in India, both models work, right? A, a fossil is much more like what you see in a California agri-tech startup, right? We're, we're, we're talking directly to growers and progressive growers, and maybe we're going to like wine, you know, vineyards, right? And selling to vineyards. And it's, it's, it's very Central Valley, okay? On the other hand, with Dehat, it really is a, a farmer platform that's been adopted, that's been adapted to a, a smallholder system where they're not expecting the farmer themselves to be adopting technology. They have their village centers where there is one of their employees who is the, the, the node by which technology kind of flows and information flows, right? And then the third example I'll give you, right, is we have a portfolio company called Intello Labs. And Intello Labs is, like I said, providing a digital quality solution for fresh produce. Intello Labs is selling in California. They're selling in New York. They're out of India, but they're selling in, in China, in Thailand, Singapore. So it's an agri-tech startup from India. But tell me if you've heard this story before. Indians are pretty good at IT hardware and software. And they're pretty good at it everywhere, not just in America. Like it, it was the, uh, we achieved the, the holy trinity last week. The heads of IBM, face, sorry, the heads of IBM, Google, and Microsoft are all now Indian. Right. IBM, IBM got is, is now being run by an Indian as of last week. So we have agritech startups in India that are that are going global and they're going global at price points that should scare agritech startups in America. Interesting. And, and with IntelliLabs, just real quickly, can you give I know you said it's a kind of a quality. So, so what exactly what pain point are they solving exactly? So they're solving the pain point of matching needs and specifications and the quality reality across the, the fresh produce supply chain. So for example, retailers are buying fresh produce and you know, in the developing world, they don't have a mechanism to kind of screen it, right? Or to know when it's gone off or to, you know, in their stores monitor that quality or when they're doing delivery monitor that quality. But their applications across food services, their application for growers and, and packers and shippers, it's it's low capex mobile phone based quality detection interesting yeah and omnivores a an impact fund as i understand it so can you kind of define that for maybe any listeners that don't understand you know what an impact fund might mean sure so omnivore is what we would call a financial first impact fund impact investing is a term that's uh, a little more than a decade old and it refers to the investment of capital where the, the desired result is not just a financial return, but also some other returns that could be social, 
socially beneficial, environmentally beneficial, right? Those are usually the, the, the two biggest. It's a little bit distinct from what is called ESG, which is environmental, social, and governance. You see a lot of ESG, right, investing that's being applied to public markets. So for example, you can now buy index funds where they will not put money in petrochemicals, guns, uh, opioids, right? All the, the, the stuff that, that some folks find objectionable. And that's, and that's becoming very common in the public markets. And impact investing encompasses that. But impact investing also includes where you are deliberately seeking investments that, that deliver additional benefit to, to the environment and society. And so we, we do fall into that. Impact investing is a spectrum. So you will find some impact investors that are not seeking market rate returns. They're actually seeking just the return of their principal, right? You will find people that are okay with sub-market returns, right? And, and, are, and, are, and are happy as long as their environmental and social aims are being achieved. And then you find a lot of people, including Omnivore, that are targeting market rate returns, right, at, at, a, at a benchmark of another of, of venture capital in Asia, but where we also see our investments creating this kind of social and environmental value, right? And that's because, again, we're in India, it's entirely smallholder farmers, and new technologies for smallholder farmers do good for the world, right? They, they, bring, they bring millions of people out of poverty, and, and they make agriculture more sustainable. And, and hence, we, we, in addition to you know, going out there and, and seeking investments that are going to maximize the return for our shareholders, which is first and you know, fundamentally what we do, we track the impact that those investments create and are able to kind of show, you know, in our first fund, north of seven or eight million farmers in India are in some way, shape or form touched by an omnivore portfolio company technology. So that's oh, wow. been kind of fantastic. And we're trying to, to do even better than that in the second fund. What other metrics do you use other than other than that one? So we look at, at so, so obviously, Smallholder Farmer Connect, we look at kind of economic value added for the farmer, where we try to measure the benefit for the farmer from, the, from this sort of new technology or this intervention. We look at positive environmental benefits, you know, substituting away, you know, using less water, using less energy, using, you know, fewer agrochemicals. Yeah, we, there's, a, there's a whole spectrum of stuff that we track. I, and I'm sorry, some of these questions are, are just going to be dumb questions because I've never been to India and I'm really kind of just learning this, some of the stuff for the first time. My, I would assume, but I don't want to assume too much. Yeah. Is it cheaper, cheaper to, to grow a startup in India? Yes, but not as cheap as it used to be. So the, the answer is, is yes. Most things, talent is definitely cheaper. But for example, if you're growing an agritech startup in India and you're targeting California, right, you're targeting a global audience, you're going to need salespeople all over the world and they're not any cheaper. But I think in general, yeah, the cost of talent here is, is less. Sometimes you need more people and that, and that makes things a bit more expensive. And sometimes because the overall infrastructure is, is weaker, there's some additional spending because of that. But yes, net net it's cheaper. Just in general, what do you? What's the thought process, or what, what are you looking for? So we always look for for what we call the three T's: team. You know, so we look at team, technology, and traction. Those are those are our big kind of objective metrics. So with the team, you know, 
in general, we prefer multiple founders to a single founder. It's running a startup is, is an incredibly stressful job. And if you have multiple hands to carry the load, it is better. It's not that we never fund solo founders. You know, Tartan Sense, the agri-robotics startup we funded in, 2000, in 2019, it has a solo founder, but we prefer teams of co-founders. And, and when we're looking at teams, you know, the thing we most want to see is prior startup experience. Ideally, some really good agribusiness experience. Not every team has that. You sometimes have teams coming from outside of the agri sector. You know, strong educational pedigrees. It's not because we're, we're, you know, opposed to people that went to okay schools. But in India, people that went to, say, the top 10% of universities tend to have really strong networks. And those networks make it easy to attract, to, to easier to attract talent to do business development and to raise money. And so they're just kind of hallmarks of success. So that's kind of team. Then technology, we're looking for stuff that's differentiated, right? We don't, we don't want me too. We want stuff that can survive competition, you know, things with, with strong IP, stuff people haven't thought about before. So we look at technological differentiation. And then finally, traction. You know, the most interesting thing for us isn't necessarily the absolute perfect technological solution, but it's the 80% technological solution that, you know, got 10,000 subscribers last month. And, yeah. and so, you know, the, with the three T's, that's kind of how we filter. Hmm. And, and just to kind of zoom out and, and, you know, broadly speaking, talking about the future of agriculture on this podcast, you know, as, as you think about how some of these trends might play out, what's top of mind for you as far as, you know, when you look into the future of agriculture, how, how are things changing either in India, globally, U.S., however you want to take it? So, I mean... I would say, you know, one big trend that we see here are what we call farm to consumer startups. More and more people want to know where their food came from. That doesn't mean organic, right? That doesn't mean, you know, it, it, it doesn't mean that, that it's, you know, macrobiotic or permaculture, but there is a desire by consumers to know that they're not eating poison, right? And, and to be clear, right, a lot of food in India comes from not great growing conditions, right? Where, where there's very high usage of pesticide. I, I'm, I'm not an organic zealot at all, right? I used to work for Syngenta. But if you look at kind of the way spraying is done in India or the quality control around milk, you sort of understand why consumers are increasingly saying, look, I want a, I want a source of food where I can, that has traceability back to a supply chain that I know was clean. And so, and I think you, you're seeing that in China, you're seeing that in India, you're seeing that around the world, right? Is that, that there is there is a lack of trust, and there is an opportunity for brands to position themselves as being safe, clean, healthy, good for you, etc. And so, farm to consumer is a big thing that we that we like. I think another trend that we're very interested in is is the trend of farmer platforms. So we talked about Dehat, which is a farmer platform. We've, we've invested in a farmer platform for aquaculture called AquaConnect. We think in general, farmers are coming together and, and taking advantage of the opportunity, right? Agribusiness, right, has gotten huge, right? And so I think, you know, if we, if we think about like the Cargills and, and the Bungies and the Dreyfuses and all of that, and I think farmer platforms are sort of positioning themselves as a counterweight to that. 
right? Let's use a digital platform to bring farmers together to, so that they can buy together, sell together, and, and, you know, and sort of counterbalance this incredible concentration that has been created with respect to inputs and outputs. Right. Sort of a digital aggregation point. Yep. I think those are, those are, and then I think the, the third trend that we're pretty into is, is just broadly the application of deep tech to, to use cases in Indian ag, right? And that includes uh, AI and ML and, you know, artificial intelligence, machine learning, big data, remote sensing, and, and looking at people that are finding ways to bring those solutions to a small older farmer, maybe not directly to the farmer, maybe it's kind of what we call B2B to F, business to business to farmer, but, but to, to empower uh, farmers in India with those technologies. Yeah. I, I had heard that you, you and you've used it a couple of times, you prefer agri-tech over ag-tech. And what's, what's, the, what's the difference there? What do you call education technology? Ed-tech, I think. What do you call advertising technology? Ad-tech. What do all of these things sound like on a muffled phone line? Ad-tech. <laughs> ag-tech. Okay. Okay. Yes. Agritech. I'm militant about this. Okay. I, I, I actually, that's a really sound argument. So, all right. I, I don't want to take too much of your time here, but I do want to talk about exits because I would think from, from your vantage point, you know, exits is a big deal. So what do you think of the current sort of landscape when it comes to exits and how do you see that developing? Because it, obviously the, the venture back businesses sort of have to come first. So there is something to exit, but it seems like we should be getting to that point where we start to see some. I mean, look, there's there's largely three kind of ways that you can exit. You can take something public, you can sell it to a corporate, or you can sell it to a later stage investor that has a different timeline than you did. And I think all of those things are are starting to happen. You know, I think that you're going to see some of the first, hopefully see some of the first big IPOs in agritech in the next, you know, 12 to 24 months. Folks like FBN, folks like Indigo, hopefully will be going public. And I think, you know, you continue to see strategic acquisitions. I think the interesting thing in India is, I think we're a few years away from from anything going public here, but it is easier to take something public in India than it is in, than it is in the U.S., right? The U.S. has made the, the, the IPO process incredibly painful after 2008 and even after 2000. So the threshold to go public in India is much easier. And I think we will see companies in our portfolio in the next five years go public. And I think the, the strategic space is one where India exists at, at an intersection between large multinationals that are interested in India because it brings a sixth of humanity to the table and it's some of their fa- one of the fastest growing markets and large Indian corporates that historically have underinvested in innovation and need to acquire innovation. And I think we have both here. And so if you think about in our portfolio, right, in fund one, we have Nutraco, right, having invested in Aruvaca. Let's see what happens there. But I, you know, I, I think that was indicative of the fact that a global multinational company saw Indian technology that they could take globally, right, which is why they invested. And I think if we look at kind of Mahindra and Mitra, Mahindra, a large Indian corporate, saw in Mahindra's precision sprayers something that they wanted to be part of. And so I think across, you know, across IPOs, strategics, and hopefully some PE secondaries, we should be able to, to show a good, a good exit track record in a few years. Great. Well, you're, really, I'm not seeing a whole lot of downside to, to uh, 
you know, starting your next great ag tech company in, in India. I mean, really it was kind of lack of capital and you're bringing that to the table. Have there been others uh, that have joined you in kind of similar space focused on agritech? Yeah, no, there there are some generalist funds that generalist VC funds that have started getting interested in ag. And there are some generalist impact funds that have started dedicating, you know, a third to half of their fund to, to, to agritech. So we're, we're happy to have the company. Yeah. And are you, do you see in the next decade, some farm level consolidation where that 100 million number would start to go down at a significant rate? I think it will go down as, as people sort of urbanize. I think there'll be farm level consolidation in terms of cultivation. Ownership may remain very fragmented. People are not inclined to sell their ancestral lands. It's my hope in India is that we'll start seeing something similar to what you see in, in Latin America where professional farm management is very established and people tend to hold on to their 50-acre, 100-acre farms rather than selling it, but they let someone, they let a large farm manager manage it for them who in practice aggregates 10,000 acres, 20,000 acres of farm at a time. Thank you once again to Mark Kahn from Omnivore for taking the time to share his insights into Indian agri-tech. I'm trying to make it stick there, but the ag tech runs deep with me. We'll, we'll try. A couple of shout outs. First of all, I want to give a shout out to Shane Thomas, who writes what is probably the best newsletter in all of ag tech or agribusiness, in my opinion. Shane featured our episode with Mickey Seibel, episode 191 on a recent newsletter. So thank you for that, Shane. Go check out Shane's must read newsletter over at upstreamaginsights.substack.com. That's upstreamaginsights.substack.com. Com. Also, I wanted to read a recent review of the podcast. I always forget to do this, and so I lose track of what was the last one I read. So I'm sorry if I've read this one already. I don't think I have. It's from Nina C. Bean. The title is Favorite Podcast, which is awesome, Nina. Thank you. I'm relatively new to the industry, so I appreciate the way Tim makes these topics accessible. This podcast stands out because of Tim's great questions about both business and ag. Keep them coming. Nina, thank you very much. And if you're listening and you have not left a rating and review, I'd really love for you to do so. It'll take maybe 30 seconds. Go on iTunes or whatever app you use and leave a quick review. I'd love to read it on this podcast and make sure other people know about the content being shared here. Thanks so much for your time and your attention. I really appreciate it. I really do not take it lightly. We'll be back next week with another interesting story of agricultural innovation. Hey, thanks again for listening to the Future of Agriculture podcast. If you like what you heard here today, I'd love to connect with you further. Go over to futureofag.com. That's futureofag.com. And let me know a good email address for you so we can keep in touch. Also, you'll be able to check out a ton of bonus content on the blog while you're there. Otherwise, make sure you're subscribed to the show so you can catch another fascinating ag innovator here next week. Hey.